You're listening to the Unmute Podcast with Maisha Cherry. Welcome to the place where philosophy and real-world issues collide. Hello, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. This is the place where I have the opportunity to talk to young, diverse philosophers about the social and political issues of our day. Today, I chat with Tom Digby. Tom is Professor Emeritus of Philosophy at Springfield College. He writes, lectures, and teaches about the intersections of masculinity, militarism, love, sexuality, and feminism. His new book is Love and War, How Militarism Shapes Sexuality and Romance. His previous book was Men Doing Feminism. In this episode, we talk about the harms of masculinity, rape culture, men and feminism, and so much more. Hello, Tom, and welcome to the Unmute Podcast. How are you today? Hi, Maisha. I'm fine. It's such an honor to be invited to do this. Uh, thanks, thank, thanks a lot. Thank you for coming on. I really appreciate it. So, Tom, I must ask, how did you get interested in philosophy? Well, Maisha, uh, there was an accidental factor, like uh, many of the folks who've been on your podcast. Uh, but let me start with something more crucial. Okay. I, I grew up with a profound need for philosophy, uh, even though I didn't realize it until I took a philosophy course. My childhood was spent in Arkansas, uh, living in a culture that was thoroughly saturated with racism, sexism, uh, fundamentalist religion, and conservative politics. And so, like anyone growing up in such a culture, I desperately needed liberation. I just didn't know it, <laughs> right? Okay. Uh, so, uh, here's the accidental part. At the end of my first year of college, I fell in love with someone who was majoring in philosophy. I had no idea what philosophy was, having grown up in Arkansas, <laughs> so I signed up for Introduction to Philosophy, and that started the process of liberation, which continues to this day. Uh, in the short term, it meant giving up following in the footsteps of my father and grandfather, um, which, was, uh, which, which would have been to pursue a career in Arkansas politics. Uh, but within a few years, I had become involved in the anti-war and civil rights movements, was reading Marx and other left off authors. And then several years after that, I encountered feminist theory, which, as you know, had an even more profound impact on my uh, life and career. And that's really been at the heart of how I understand philosophy ever since. So let's dig into some of those issues. Now, you, you've written a book, and I'm pretty excited about this because there's not a lot of philosophers that work on issues concerning masculinity, right? So I'm very, very interested in this conversation that we're going to have. So my first question is this, what is masculinity? And I guess the second question is connected to the first. Is it biological or is it socially constructed for you? Well, um, although biological considerations are not altogether irrelevant to masculinity, uh, prioritizing them often camouflages cultural factors. Okay. So in my Love and War book, I try to bring those cultural elements out into the open to expose them uh, so that there's more freedom around them. To accomplish that, I focus on what I call the cultural programming of masculinity, as well as other aspects of gender, love, and sexuality. In particular, I describe and explain how all of those things flow from cultural militarism and material requirements of war in societies that rely on war to solve social problems, and that's not all societies, as many people mistakenly assume. Uh, in those culturally militaristic societies, there's a presumption of adversariality between one's own society 
other societies as well as between individuals. There's also so that's one element in cultural militarism, a presumption of adversariality. There's also a faith in force, especially violent force, as a way to solve problems. In societies that rely extensively on war, the uh, presumption of adversariality and the faith in force tend to be important elements of masculinity because men are the ones who are usually singled out for the warrior role. And so masculinity is, among other things, a modality for cultural, uh, culturally programming boys and men to fulfill the warrior ideal of manhood. Another crucial element of masculinity in these uh, war-reliant societies is the ability to manage the capacity to care about the suffering of others and of themselves. That, to me, is the fundamentally most important prerequisite for uh, somebody who's going to fight war. In actual combat, an effective warrior must be able to manage empathy in, in that way. He, and I use the masculine pronoun advisedly, uh, must be able to kill and impose enormous suffering on others, and he must be willing to expose himself to the risk of death and enormous physical and emotional suffering. Now, obviously, not all men, even in militaristic societies, are uh, good at being warriors, and many of them would refuse that role even if they were capable of doing it. Nonetheless, militaristic societies culturally program masculine expectations into virtually all boys and men, regardless of uh, whether they're actually going to play that role. So in the U.S. today, uh, most boys and men do not actually fight wars and do not even go into the military. Yet we still use things like football to culturally program them, uh, with varying degrees of success, I should say, to have a presumption of adversariality, a faith in force, and an ability to manage the capacity to care about the suffering of others in themselves. So I have to say, Maisha, that it shouldn't be surprising then that we find those tendencies uh, toward adversariality, a faith in force, and uh, managing empathy, uh, even among many professional philosophers, who were about 85% male, I think. Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, so let me uh, just be really clear about a couple of things. What I've tried to describe and explain are patterns of cultural programming in militaristic societies, not generalizations about all men and not generalizations about all societies. Okay. And I should note that there are many other aspects of masculinity than those I have described, uh, many of which have been discussed brilliantly by other folks who work in this area, like, um, well, Susan Bordeaux, Shira Tarrant, Bonnie Mann, Tom Keith, Byron Hurt, Jackson Katz, Michael Kimmel, C.J. Pascoe, Tristan Bridges, and a bunch of other people. So so would you say that the, the, the masculinity that you have described, and I know this is going to vary per culture, is kind of what we would consider hegemonic masculinity? Uh, yes, that certainly makes sense uh, to use that term because it, it it's inherently focused on domination and control of an enemy in war, but that carries over into the rest of life as well. And also it's hegemonic in the sense that, so it's hegemonic on the individual level, but it's also hegemonic in the sense that there's a there's an effort in culturally militaristic societies to culturally culturally program all men and boys into this particular masculine role so it's hegemonic in that sense even though many of them you know as i said are, are really ill-suited for that role and uh, really resisted so let's talk a little bit more about kind of mention this kind of what is wrong with this kind of hegemonic masculinity because for some people, you know, some people say, well, I need this kind of masculinity in order to survive in the world, right? In order to be considered a man. And so someone may say, so what's so problematic about it, Tom? Well, if you mean morally wrong, that's not something I address, uh, not least because I have a, a deep philosophical skepticism about moral judgments and partly also because of my up, 
my, my growing up in a culture of hate that was grounded in moralism. So I'm very skeptical about moral judgments. But if you mean wrong pragmatically, uh, I have a long answer to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I would have to answer that that question in terms of the harms of masculinity uh, to both men and women, and especially how those harms to men and women are intertwined. Let's take the connection between one of the worst harms for women, that is rape, and those three factors, uh, the connection between that and those three factors in militaristic masculinity that I described, a presumption of adversariality, a faith in force, and the ability to manage the capacity to care about the suffering of others. Well, actually, uh, maybe I don't even need to elaborate on how those elements of masculinity connect with the problem of rape, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but there is indeed more to the, to the story. Uh, militaristic societies rely heavily on misogyny to both culturally program and police masculinity. For example, to call a man a pussy or bitch is to throw him uh, over the fence of the culturally programmed gender binary. It's saying that he is not a man at all but rather a woman. That's not like mistaking his eye color. It's a profound insult that only works if women are presumed to be uh, inferior and even detested. Thus, such insults are grounded in misogyny. So that provides another piece of the explanation uh, of the problem of rape. Misogyny is used to culturally program and reinforce masculinity, so it shouldn't be a surprise that militaristic societies have a problem uh, with men raping. But not all of the victims of, of those men are women, of yes. course. The thing is, misogyny is also operative in many cases, maybe even most cases, where the victim of rape is a man or a boy. Uh, those are the cases where the rape is understood to make a man into a woman uh, symbolically. So in prison, he becomes another man's bitch. And in the Civil War in the Congo, men who have been raped have been called bushwives. Uh, there are a lot more examples in, in, in my book of how misogyny harms both men and women in militaristic societies. But that may you know, give you enough of a, a sense of how that works. So, so you, you've mentioned uh, scholars who are, are focusing or at least have done work on masculinity. I've been asked this question, so I'm going to throw this question back at you. So th there are scholars that are studying masculinity. But why, why hasn't there been a, an examination of, of femininity? And, and I wonder if, if, if this is the case because a study in masculinity itself is also a lesson in femininity, I wonder what is your response to that? Well, uh, in societies that rely on war, masculinity and femininity are certainly intertwined. Uh, in fact, actually, there's not nearly so much emphasis on those things in societies that are not reliant on war. And in, in fact, in some cases, uh, there there's simply no such thing as masculinity and femininity in, in non-war reliant societies. But uh, the cultural programming of the warrior ideal of masculinity ensures that dominance is an integral factor in masculinity and correspondingly submissiveness becomes an integral part of culturally programmed femininity. And there are a lot of reasons uh, in, involved with that, but, but it's, in any case, it's important to note that these are culturally programmed patterns, not generalizations. There have been, uh, one, one factor with, with femininity is obviously maternalism. Um, and uh, in, in militaristic societies, there tends to be an emphasis on uh, maternalism because of the need to keep the population at high levels because a lot of people are being killed uh, in traditional wars. So there have, it's important to note now that these are uh, just culturally programmed patterns. And I use the word pattern the way that Marilyn Fry does, uh, not generalizations. There have always been strong and dominant women, just as there have always been uh, submissive men. But part of the cultural programming is to have 
pejoratives and other, and other sanctions for both of those cases. So women who are political leaders are often called bitches, witches, etc. cetera. Uh, we've heard that a little bit in this uh, election cycle. And, uh, and also in other countries as well, that's happened. And men who demonstrate devotion to a lover are often described as whipped. But as, as for people who've addressed femininity, I think the most important and valuable work that's been done on femininity, that brilliant actually, uh, comes from one of my dearest friends, Sandra Barkey, who also happens to be uh, one of the two dedicatees of my Love and War book. And um, somebody else who comes to mind would be Susan Bordeaux, uh, who has written brilliantly on both femininity and uh, masculinity. As a woman, when I'm walking into a door and say a gentleman before me does not hold open the door, I don't say this, but I know some friends that I've been with, the most popular comment that they say sarcastically is chivalry is dead. But, but you claim in your book that, that chivalry is consistent with misogyny. How so? Well, um, first of all, chivalry, and by the way, I should say other people have written much more extensively about this th than I have, but chivalry implies that men are strong and women are weak, that, that women need men, but men don't need women, and so on. So there are a whole lot of, there's a whole lot of asymmetry going on in chivalry that is problematic from my point of view, and certainly it, it, it indicates that um, all these factors indicate that chivalry is, as you say, quite consistent with misogyny. And in fact, um, I would say that historically it is, if not a crucial part of misogyny, it certainly is uh, plays a big role in misogyny. So let's talk about relationships. What has gone horribly wrong with heterosexuality? And I wonder, and you don't necessarily touch on this, but I wonder if the problem or what has gone wrong in heterosexuality can also transfer or infiltrate itself in same-sex relationships. So what has gone wrong? Well, in the book, I rely heavily on the perspicacity of Nietzsche. Nietzsche wrote toward the end of the 19th century at a time when not only in the U.S., uh, but also in Europe, the, the notion of equal rights for women and men was in the air. And he wrote about the problems that beset heterosexual relationships uh, specifically. Now, obviously, there are plenty of uh, same-sex relationships that go awry, and even some that do so to the extent of violence. Uh, but there are problems in straight relationships that are specific to heterosexuality, that is, that, that flow from the very structure of heterosexuality, namely the hetero part. The assumption that there are two genders that are differentiated in specific ways that contribute to the culturally programmed notion of men being dominant and women being submissive. Uh, Nietzsche says that that, uh, that pattern leads inevitably to antagonism, which is easily confirmed by oh, domestic violence statistics and for many, for, for many people even in everyday life in, in arguments and that sort of thing. In the book, I talk about how that notion of women being submissive is rapidly dissipating and that we are becoming more accustomed to women in positions of power in politics, business, and even religion. Increasingly, girls grow up expecting to uh, occupy those positions of power and even uh, thinking that submissiveness to men is ridiculous. Those attitudes have always been around, especially in certain segments of culture, but they're becoming more uh, prevalent uh, now. The problem is that uh, masculinity has not evolved in sync with the changes in the lives of women and girls. Uh, so a lot of men are freaking out and expressing their fears and anxieties with uh, over-the-top misogyny in video gaming, video gaming culture, and in, in political discourse, actually, and, you know, in uh, comments and that sort of thing. And, and um, well, men have always uh, responded to threats 
to their domination with with violence. But it seems to me that misogyny is something you, you think they're becoming more visible in, in the recent uh, uh, decades, or it's hard to say whether whether it's actually becoming uh, more prevalent. But but the reason I'm ten- I tend to think that it actually is becoming a bit more prevalent is just because of that pattern of, of masculinity not evolving in sync with femininity, uh, so that a lot of men feel bewildered by, by what's happening in the world of gender. I was, um, when you were talking, I was just thinking about Ghostbusters movie is coming out. And if you're familiar with the original, it's played, you know, by all all men. And the remake is being played by all women. I'm, I'm a, a part of nerd culture, so I've been paying attention to people's reactions. Right. And it's been not so good. <laughs> From from right, men in right. that regard. And of course, as you were talking, of course, as you alluded to this, I thought about Hillary Clinton, the misogyny that has been shown during this election towards towards her. How can we create more love and less war between genders? What can a solution be? Or is there a solution? Uh, I'm not sure that I you know, have the solution, uh, but a good first step would be to reveal that the gender binary is an illusion, that that uh, uh, and that, that that gender binary the thing is, uh, in, in a society where masculinity is uh, constructed and policed using misogynistic taunts towards men, uh, suggesting that they're not being real men, but being pussies, bitches, etc., then uh, to the extent that men grow up with those misogynistic assumptions, that's obviously going to create acrimony in their relationships, uh, not just in their relationships, uh, you know, love relationships, romantic and erotic relationships, but also in the worlds of work, friendship, politics, religion, and everything else. And we can, we can see misogyny in all those areas of life. I focus on love in the book, but I do fairly often, you know, try to emphasize that the implications are, and ramifications are much broader than just in, in the context of love. Uh, but once the myths surrounding masculinity and femininity are debunked, that opens up the possibility of men and women relating to each other with mutual respect, which seems to me pretty obviously uh, crucial to a successful uh, love relationship. And even, well, obviously successful to to all relationships. It's essential to all, uh, for all successful relationships of any kind. So, So it's absolutely crucial then to eliminate the role of misogyny in constructing and policing masculinity. And uh, we can't really expect men and women to get along if, if, if what it means to be a man is grounded in the hatred of women. Those are, those are some elements. Uh, and, you know, just in general, a sense of egalitarianism in a relationship seems uh, to me crucial in order for a relationship to uh, succeed. I wonder what do you think about men's rights movements or the men's rights movement? And there's several organizations under that. But as, as we were talking, I, just headlines begin to pop up that I've saw over the Internet in the last year or so. Men who think that they are are being oppressed in some way. What is your view ab- about those organizations? I guess they would be a good example of the kind of fear and anxiety that men have with regards to uh, the changing roles of women. Women really are gaining more power in the world in every every area of the world, uh, pretty much. I mean, it's every part of culture, uh, politics, uh, economics, business, etc., cetera, uh, and, and video games, actually, too. So, uh, you know, technology and so on. And a lot of men are afraid of that, and they just have not been uh, exposed to other ways of understanding masculinity and the ways in which masculinity is actually harmful to them. I mean, if a man has been culturally programmed 
to be able to suppress concern about his own uh, happiness uh, and, and concern about his own suffering. That has all kinds of horrible implications in men's lives. Uh, I mean, a lot of studies have shown, for example, that men are less likely to seek medical uh, help when they have uh, health problems. And, uh, but also, it's, it's emotionally destructive to men to, 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 manage the, to manage empathy in the way that's demanded by masculinity. Uh, so I think a lot of these MRAs, and I have, I've known one or two actually uh, rather well, and I've paid attention to the, to the stories that you're talking about also in the news. And, and I think a lot of them just don't understand the destructive role that masculinity plays in many men's lives. And they've just not been exposed to either a critique of masculinity or to uh, alternative visions of what it might uh, mean to be a man. The Prime Minister of, of Canada is very proud to call himself a feminist. I was reading about a, I believe it was an entertainer or athlete who, who believed in the equality of, of, of women, who was indeed a, a feminist, but refused to kind of give himself that label for fear that it would take attention off of the issues that matter. So I, I ask you this, do you label yourself a feminist? Why or why not? Well, it depends on the context. Sometimes when I'm teaching, uh, after I have established rapport and respect and most importantly, coolness with my students, I'll proclaim quite boldly that I am a feminist as a way of countering the stigma that is often attached to the word feminist uh, among students. But I've learned to avoid controversies about whether a man can be a feminist or not. That to me is not a very interesting issue. My, my own feminism has been a crucial part of my self-identity for well over 30 years. But as far as I'm concerned, in terms of my, my, my public life, it's my advocacy of feminism that is important, uh, not the label. So, you know, if, if someone wants to say that uh, men can't be feminists or that I can't be a feminist or whatever, uh, it doesn't matter to me. I, I take the lead of Bell Hooks, actually, uh, who emphasized that uh, feminism is really about advocating feminism, ad advocating different kinds of relations with, of men and women and eliminating misogyny and those sorts of things. So how would you convince a man that feminism is not a bad word? <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> I've had to do that many times, of course. Uh, and uh, But to keep the answer short, let me share an anecdote. Uh, last spring, I was giving a public lecture at William Jewell College near Kansas City which happens to be my alma mater. Uh, the fraternity of which I had been a part briefly as a student got word of my visit. And so all the members of the fraternity were required to attend my lecture. Uh, there were, I guess, probably about 300 people there and about 50 of them were members of, <laughs> of that group. And I wanted to send a message to my, uh, quote, brothers, unquote, as, as they say, uh, not least because so many fraternities have been uh, actively promoting misogyny on college campuses. So during the Q&A, I found my opportunity uh, to send that message when one of the fraternity members asked why uh, feminism wouldn't get in the way of heterosexual love because it takes the side of one person over the other. Uh, I started with the definition of feminism that I offer in the book. It's a simple, minimal definition that accords with, with most uh, versions of feminism. Feminism, the definition is this. Feminism is a preference that girls and women not be subjected to disadvantage just because they are girls or women. So it's very simple. Uh, very straightforward. It doesn't involve an, uh, an ideology or, or theory. It's just a preference. 
And I said, if you if you look at it that way, then anybody who doesn't embrace feminism is is effectively embracing the disadvantaging of girls and women, which is saying a lot about that person's attitudes toward girls and women. And in fact, it's just inherently uh, misogynistic to have that sort of perspective. In other words, being uh, anti-feminist or non-feminist is effectively to embrace misogyny. And so I said, then I said this. I said, I have a message for the men in this audience. If you plan on being a heterosexual man, then you damn well better embrace feminism because otherwise you're screwed and not in the good way. And then I repeated that. And of course, this, the thing is, I was trying to, to, to make a point in that particular context. Um, and I guess it comes across as aggressive. Like I said uh, earlier, I'm still evolving. But it really has broader implications. Any man, regardless of his sexual orientation, is going to be interacting with women and men in, 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 in his lifetime, in his work, uh, in friendships, and so on. For those relationships to be happy and fulfilling... And even to be successful on an economic level, then you damn well better embrace feminism. So last question. You said that you grew up in Arkansas. Um, You now live in the Northeast. And I'm from the South. And it's, it's weird because I've, you know, I've spent some time in the South. And then I've also spent the same amount of time moving slowly up, but surely up North. But there's always something about me that makes it very clear to someone else where I'm from. So my question to you is, what is that one thing that reminds you or others of your Arkansas roots? Well, uh, thanks, Maisha, for finally asking an easy question. Uh, (laughs) I really appreciate that. Uh, The answer would have to be, uh, I guess, my use of the expression y'all. It it, it is, in fact, the second person plural pronoun. Uh, It's just that (laughs) folks outside the South don't always realize that. Uh, they're grammatically impaired, but, uh, uh, so, so that would be one thing. Uh, and also I have to confess that many of my friends complain about how slow I am with regards to, uh, pretty much everything. And finally, although I haven't had it in a while, I love cornbread. (laughs) I just had cornbread last night, vegan cornbread that is, but I most definitely understand. All right. I know I said last question, but I've never done this before, but I'm gonna put you on the spot. Oh, All right. No. <laughs> okay. And this is going to, this is going to cause you to do something that you probably have never done. All right. So someone has just finished listening to the podcast and they may be thinking, Hey, should I pick up Tom's book? All right. So that's, that's, that's the question. I enjoy the podcast, but should I spend my 15, 20 bucks on Tom's book? How would you encourage them to pick up your book? What would you say to them? Well, first of all, I would I would say that the uh, Kindle version is available for about thirteen bucks, <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and you know, when I first started thinking, teaching, and, and writing about love uh, many years ago, it, it was after one relationship had ended and another relationship was about to start, and I thought to myself, you know, philosophers have written about a lot about love uh, over the centuries, and and uh, so I'm just gonna. Uh, focus on that. So I'm going to teach a course called Philosophy of Love. My goal in in doing that was to make sure that in my next relationship, I wouldn't screw things up (laughs) like I had before, right? Uh, And I have to say that 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 study that has and, and, and all that teaching and, and writing and thinking over the years since really has made a profound difference in my life. It has really uh, 
uh, not just in terms of, of my, my, relationship, my, my relationships, but in terms of my teaching, for example. It's, it really has had a huge impact on my teaching. And it's also had a huge impact on my relations with people generally, both women and men. I, I have to say, I, I feel like I've just grown enormously as a result of this, this study. And, and the book, the Love and War book, is just the, the culmination of all of that thinking and teaching and writing uh, over the years. And I, I guess I'm pretty confident that it could have a similar value for other people. And there are also, but there are also lots of other factors. I'm, I'm very much a political animal. I grew up that way, and, and, uh, and I think it, it has a lot of implications for politics. In fact, one of the chapters of the book, one of the many chapters of the book that uh, didn't wind up being in the final edition uh, was about how militarism affects politics. And also, there's a lot of reflection on war uh, and how war is changing and how that's going to impact all of our lives. I mean, well, yeah, I shouldn't get into that, but, but, there, but there, there is a, a, a chapter devoted to how war is changing and becoming less gendered than it has been traditionally. And there's uh, um, another chapter on what the implications of that uh, degendering of war are in our everyday lives and in our relationships, both not just not just our love relationships, but uh, our, our social relationships generally. So I think it's an important book in that in that respect. And I'll let other people judge, you know, whether it's important in any other in any other respects. Thank you so much, Tom, for coming on. I really appreciated our conversation. Well, thank you, Maisha. Like I said, it's it's an incredible honor to be a part of this series. You've had some really great people on on your podcast, and it's been it's really making an important contribution to the the profession of, of philosophy. So, thank you very much for doing it. Well, I'm glad. Thank you so much. For more access to the Unmute Podcast, subscribe on iTunes or head over to the website at www.unmutepodcast.co. There you can get more information about our guests, participate in giveaways, as well as learn more about people, books, and concepts mentioned in today's episode. Until next time, remember that your silence will not protect you. Listen, think, speak. The world will be different as a result.